I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Corinthians. We are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting to read in verse 18 down through chapter 2, verse 5. I'm going to read those verses out loud, and you can follow along in your copy of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting to read in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish the wisdom of the world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Starting two Sundays ago, and then this week and the next two weeks, we are asking the question, why are we here? And we answered that question two weeks ago by focusing on the same passage that Pastor Soko just read a few minutes ago from Matthew 28. We are here to make disciples. A disciple of someone is a follower of that person, one who is learning from that person, trying to emulate their life. And we can see in the Gospel of John that some started following Jesus, but then they stopped. John chapter 6, verses 63 through 66 give us an example of that. They never really came to a point of believing Jesus' claims. But then we saw in John chapter 2, verse 11, that 
some did put their trust, their faith in Jesus Christ, believing his message, believing in his person that he is God who came to earth, lived a sinless life, died in our stead, and rose again. Those were true disciples. To be a true disciple, a person moves from just being curious about who is Jesus to being convinced that he is God, that he died in our stead and rose again from the dead. And at that point, the person becomes a Christian, as the Bible defines it. When a person becomes a Christian, his discipleship does not stop. Meaning, we don't just stop there following Jesus. No, we are to continue to follow Jesus so that Jesus' life is replicated in ours. Yielding to Him in every area of life as He is righteous and the right standard, we too are to live holy lives rightly before God. We move from being just convinced about who Jesus is to being committed to Him in every area of our lives. A disciple demonstrates his devotion to Jesus in three ways in the New Testament. A disciple of Jesus connects in Christian community. A disciple of Jesus grows in devotion to Jesus Christ. And a disciple includes those who do not yet know Jesus. And we are going to be focusing today and the next two weeks on those three key terms, connect, grow and include. And we're going to do it just from the book of 1 Corinthians. And since I wanted to follow the order in which Paul dealt with those, we're going to start with the word include today. To include others who do not know Jesus Christ. Those of us who are here this morning and have placed our trust in the person of Jesus Christ, know that that good news of Jesus, the gospel, has a transforming, does a transforming work in our lives. It is changing us. That at the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes in and takes up residence within us and begins to shape us and mold us more like Jesus. And we may not see it from one day to the next, but as we look over a period of time, we see that we are being transformed from the inside out. And one of the things that comes from following after Jesus is a commitment, a passion, a burden to not just keep that experience of being transformed into the image of Christ to ourselves, but rather to share this good news with other men and women and boys and girls who have not yet heard the good news or who currently stand in rejection of the good news so that they too can experience the peace and the joy and the hope that we have found in the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that the world around us pretty much considers our message foolishness. 
And not only our message, but us for believing it. So bottom line, it's a foolish message delivered by fools. And yet, to those of us who have placed our trust in the person of Jesus Christ, we see that message our only hope. The power of God. That, that, that message that actually has the ability to transform, to change how we think, to change our values, to change how we live. Are we going to keep that to ourselves? When my three sons were little, going to elementary school at one of the local elementaries, we were contacted by some parents of one of my, one of my son's classmates. And the parent was very frustrated with our son because our son kept talking to their son about Jesus. And we, upon hearing this, asked our son and our son said, well, he doesn't know about Jesus and so I'm trying to tell him. And we said, that's a good thing, son, that you're telling your friend about Jesus. The parent's response was, if we want our son to know about Jesus, we will tell him. Please ask your son to stop talking to our son about Jesus. Which we totally ignored. (laughs) You know, so many times as adults, we complicate things, we, we, we overthink things, and sometimes we need to be a little bit more like a kid. It's a very simple message that God has called very simple servants to share in a simple way. We don't argue people to faith in Jesus. People coming to faith in the person of Jesus Christ are doing so by the power of God, by the power of the Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning we want to look at this trait of a disciple, a committed disciple, doesn't want to just hang on to the gospel message themselves. A committed disciple looks to include others in this wonderful message of good news. And it's important for us to recognize that we won't always be welcome. It's important for us to recognize what Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2, that many just think, what a fool. But that's okay. So let's begin by looking, first of all, at chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, as we see that that the world views our message of a crucified Savior as foolish. If you notice with me verse one in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul views two groups of people here. He sees a group that he refers to as those who are perishing, And then there's a group, it says, those who are being saved. Two groups. One group stands in rejection of the person of Jesus Christ. 
and are en route to an eternity separated from God that the Bible calls as a place called hell. The other group, it says, refers to as those who are being saved. And as we look at that phrase, it kind of evokes in us a question like, well, I thought at the moment I put my trust in Jesus that I am saved. Why does it say here that, why does Paul refers to those as those who are being saved? Well, yes, both are right. At the moment I put my trust in Jesus Christ, He, the Father, because of my faith in the person of the Son, believing that He is God and He died for my sin and rose again, the Father declares me to be righteous. He declares me to be in right relationship with Him. He justifies me. And at the moment I put my trust in Jesus Christ, I am saved. But the New Testament also talks about the fact that there is a sure process of salvation that's going on that will culminate in me being made into the likeness of Jesus Christ and spending eternity in with with God forever and ever with all of God's people. And that process is what the Apostle Paul is referring to here. It begins with this declaration of being right with God, this justification. It also includes me being declared to be a set-apart one. For God's use, I am positionally sanctified. But the New Testament also talks about a process of sanctification by which the Spirit of God at the moment of faith starts a work in us where He continues to peel us back, helping us see more and more areas of lives that need to be yielded underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And progressively, I become more like Him a little bit at a time. That theologians call progressive sanctification. It's that that day-by-day holiness to which each of us as Jesus' followers are called, which will culminate in our glorification when one day we will be face-to-face with Jesus Christ and we will be like Him. The Apostle Paul wraps all of that up in this little phrase, those who are being saved. For those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ and experienced His salvation, we look at this message of the good news, the gospel, is the power of God. It's our only hope. It's our only hope is humanity. It's what gives us finally purpose and peace and a future It's the message that helps us know for sure we are in right standing with God. But for those who stand in rejection of the person of Jesus Christ, Paul says here, they view our message as foolish. In fact, the Apostle Paul goes on in verse 19 and explains verse 18. If you look at verse 19, it begins with the little connecting word for. He's saying, I'm going to explain what I just said. And to do that, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 4. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 29, it's a passage where the nation of Israel disobeys God. The Assyrians, these 
tribal northern people are going to come in and take the northern tribes of Israel captive. And Israel thought, we need help. And in direct violation of God's clear command, they strike an allegiance with Egypt to help come and stave off the Assyrian attack. What was God's call to Israel? Just depend on me. Keep your confidence and your hope in me. You don't have to strike an allegiance with a foreign people. But for the Israel, for Israel at the time, they're thinking, well, this makes sense. This, this will, this will help protect us. It, it, it's what's rational. I mean, it doesn't even make sense just to sit and have a prayer meeting. What does Paul, what's Paul's purpose here? He's saying, the message of God is one of trust and faith. The message of the gospel is one of trust and faith. The world looks at it and they say, no, it doesn't even make sense. We need to take action. Just like Israel thought, we need to take action. We'll just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we will solve this problem. No, we won't. So Paul goes on to explain that the wisdom of God, it's not got man's wisdom. Man thinks that, hey, I'm good enough. And we rationalize and say, well, a, a, a loving God would never allow somebody to actually go to a place like hell. That must just be a fabrication. And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 21, the world through its wisdom never gets to God. Since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. What's that message? It's a simple message. Christ crucified. It's the message that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to earth born of a virgin, lived a sinless life as 100% God, 100% man, died taking all of the penalty for the sin of the world upon himself, and then rose again, proving that he is God. And at the moment we put our belief, our trust, our faith in the person of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary payment for sin is credited to the account of our lives. And the world looks at that message and say, oh, what a, what a foolish message. Man, sinful. No, don't you know that people are basically good? What a, what a silly message to say that God would send his one and only son, the second person of the Trinity, to die as a substitute. We don't even need a substitute. And, and God's a good God. He wouldn't actually punish someone for just doing what they can't help but doing. But Paul says, even though the world thinks it's a foolish message, in verse 21 he refers to the same people he talks about in verse 18, those who are being saved. And in verse 21 he says... 
We preach Christ crucified to Jews as a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but, excuse me, verse 24, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, we are sharing a message that the world thinks is foolish. We have some commission missionaries that were sent out from Faith Bible Church, uh, Tracy and Brenda Leeson. And they went to Bratislava, Slovakia, almost 20 years ago. And I can remember as they went over there, to the best of my recollection, kidless, and now they have, I lose track, is it eight? Eight, now they have eight. But they went over as, without children, and they started giving birth to these babies, and the cultural differences really started to stand out. And I can remember Tracy and Brenda relaying to us the account of having their babies outside on a summer day, and having older Slovak women coming up to them, angry with them, because they didn't have the baby's head covered. I mean, it could be like 80 degrees outside, and these ladies were angry with them because they didn't have the baby's head covered, because they were in their thinking that any kind of air movement would um, cause illness in that baby. Now, we look at that and say, that's ludicrous. How that doesn't even make sense. It, it's not rational. And I still think that. That's how the world thinks about our message. It doesn't even make sense. It's not rational. And the apostle Paul clearly says the world thinks it's a foolish message. Get this, the world doesn't always only think that it's a foolish message. They think those who believe it are fools. In a sense, we need to stop worrying about what people think about us when we talk about Jesus, because the world already thinks we're nuts. They already think that we're fools for believing such a foolish message. So in verses 26 through 31, Paul says that the world views God's people, the world views disciples as fools and weaklings. Notice with me verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. Now remember he's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, as you unfold this whole book, believe that they are very much on the cutting edge intellectually. They are in the know. They are very wise. And they pride themselves on the level of tolerance that they are exercising within the local church. Probably didn't come real welcome to them when Paul says to them in verse 26, Hey, just think about yourselves. Consider your calling, brethren. There weren't not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. You're the foolish. 
God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despise God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Look at verse 29. So that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. You see, I have... I have no reason to say, well, I'm a Christian because I rationally came to this point and my great intellect helped me see that there was no other possible way of being right with God. No way! It, 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 this was not, I, none of us in this room have the ability to come to God and say, well, I am following you because of my great insight. The Apostle Paul here says, no, that's not the way it works. Our salvation is a work of God. We are God's people because He chose to provide a way of salvation for us in and of ourselves. We would never even see our need for the Savior. The Spirit of God is the one who brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. So that no man may boast before God. It's by His doing you are in Christ Jesus. And it's in Christ Jesus that we have wisdom. It's in Christ Jesus that we can claim to be righteousness. Not by own, by own merit because I'm declared to be righteous. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's by Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel that I'm declared to be set apart to Him as a holy Man is a holy woman. It's by Him that I've been purchased out of my bondage to sin. It's all by the power of Jesus Christ. There's no room for me to boast at all. You know what it feels like to be marginalized? To marginalize someone is, even sometimes with one word, we can render them unimportant. In a sense, we are putting them off to the side in the margin. And quite frankly, all of us in this room are guilty of this, most likely. We don't like it when it happens to us, like, uh, that guy's from Iowa. <laughs> Meaning, I uh, really can't, don't, I mean, he doesn't really know what he's, he's from Iowa. Of course, we do the same thing. New York City. <laughs> or maybe we marginalize people by saying, well, he's a left-winger or a right-winger. And just because they are right-wing or left-wing politically, then we marginalize and say there's absolutely nothing that could come from their mouth that would have any grain of usefulness. I just came from a pastor's conference where there were pastors from all over the country. We went to a theological conference where we studied the doctrine of the church. And sometimes at those conferences, I'm a little quiet about the fact that I went to Dallas Theological Seminary because as soon as pastors know that, it's easy to be marginalized. You're one of those DTS guys. You're one of those dispensationalists. And they put a label on you and boom. 
I'm proud of my seminary, but I just don't make a big deal out of it when I'm with other pastors. Well, guess what? As Christians in this world in which we live, we're very quickly and easily marginalized. Evangelical. You people believe that the Bible is actually literal. You, you people think that every passage in here is, every word in here is from God. Uh, what kind of a thinking person would believe that? And you people think that there's only one pathway to God. Uh, what kind of a rational thinking person in a forward-moving, progressive world in which we live today would possibly think that there would be only one pathway to God. We're marginalized. And that's okay. Because it's not up to us to bring people into the kingdom of God. It's up to us to share the good news. God is the one who takes the power of the gospel. And God is the one who by His Holy Spirit brings conviction to the heart. And God is the one who saves so that none of us can even boast. Quite frankly, it's important for us to realize that we are already marginalized. It's important for us to realize that the people around us basically view our message as foolishness and us as fools. That's what brings us so that we can be at the same point as the Apostle Paul is in here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Because the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, talks about the fact and his commitment as a disciple of Jesus, he came to the Corinthians and he shared the good news and he was scared. Don't, I love this passage. You guys... I would guess that some of you out there would think that since I'm a pastor, that it's easy for me to talk to strangers about Jesus. I get as scared as you do. It's not easy. And, and I'm, I second guess myself and I said, oh, I should have said this or I should have said that. Look at the Apostle Paul here. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my meaning were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. These verses are not saying that we should not, as Christians, have a basis for our faith. These verses are not saying that we should not be um, versed in apologetics. Paul's not saying that. He's not saying, oh, just never learn about your faith. What he's saying is this. The essence of our message is a simple message. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the fact that we have a Savior who did not stay dead but rose again from the dead. 
That's our message. And as much as we think that we can somehow rationally use a consistent, logical, linear argument to prove to someone why they need to become a Christian, in and of ourselves, that's not going to happen. Rather, the Apostle Paul here says, my message, simple message, Christ crucified. And it's not because of me that my message is even was taken by you, because it's, it's not me. It's the power of the Spirit of God. My message and my preaching were not persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Two weeks ago, I was on the basketball court at the Y. I should stop playing basketball because before I go, I put icy hot on both knees. I take three Advil. Then I have to shoot for about a half hour and try to get loose. Then I play. Love it. It's a bunch of old guys trying to relive the glory years, which most of us, including me, never had anyway. But I'm a legend in my own mind at the Y. And then I get done, and I come home, and then I take more Advil, and then I take more Advil right before bed, and then for the next two days. But I just can't stop. So I'm on the basketball court with the rest of the old guys, and about two minutes before we're going to start, this guy who I've played with for like 15 years comes up to me and says, man, I just can't believe what my church is teaching anymore. And he started talking to me about the elements of the Lord's Supper. I mean, I'm on the basketball floor. I smell like Ben Gay. And we got all these guys, and this guy's wanting to talk about the essence, the nature of communion. And so I talked with him a little bit about the blood and the body and what Jesus, who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished for us, and then we started the game. And after the fact, I was, oh man, I wish I would have said this, or I wish I would have said this, or I should have done this. But I'm confident that God brought me that opportunity. And in my own, in my own uh, frame of mind at the time, hopefully under the empowerment of the Spirit, I share what I needed to hear. Now, how are we possibly to be ready to share this life-changing message with people who, for the most part, don't want to hear it. How can I possibly be prepared for that moment where I found myself on the basketball court? I so deeply appreciated uh, Pastor John North, who was with us several weeks ago, and uh, shared a, a very similar message And John challenged us as a church to pray three things. And if you go back on our mural of the city, back in our prayer room, I asked our admins to write those three things on the wall of our prayer room. And when I go in there during the week, I try to go in there every week and just actually lay my hands on those names and pray for those people. And I pray that prayer. And I encourage you to pray it too. And I'm not going to get the words exactly the way that, that John said them. But basically, here's what we're to pray for. We're to pray for open hearts or open doors, however you want to say it, for God to do a work in hearts 
and for you and me to have boldness to open our mouths. To pray, God, every day, God, please open a door for me today that I'd have an opportunity to share the good news. And God, please be doing a work in the hearts of those with whom I interface today that there'd be a receptivity to the gospel. And God, if that opportunity opens up, help me to open my mouth. Help me not to be gripped with fear. Remember, I'm the guy when I first got married, couldn't call up a store to ask them what time they opened. I had to have my wife do that because I was so scared to talk on the phone. You see, the Apostle Paul here, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-2-5, is talking about our word, include. It's a life-changing message. And the Spirit of God can work, work through a simple messenger with a simple message. Father, we thank you for these passages in 1 Corinthians and pray that as a church you would help us to really commit regularly in our lives to pray for open doors, for you to work in hearts, and for us to have boldness. We want to be a church that includes men and women and boys and girls who don't know yet Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.